right. Well, good morning, Peninsula Community Church. My name is Andrew. I am the pastor of student ministry here, and uh, I'll be filling in for Pastor Jim this week. Uh, but I bet you already knew that because as you came in, you realized that uh, your back page was a word search this week. And so you're like, okay, that makes sense. Um, but we're sticking with the same thing. If you're new here, we've been, we've been doing this series called Really. Um, and it's basically uh, looking at the state of American theology. We've been kind of trying to set a foundation, trying to set a groundwork um, really on these uh, big questions. And we're going to continue with that today. Uh, as we ask this question, is God really three in one? Uh, or perhaps kind of more where we're going um, is, is more, what does that really mean? Um, and so today we're going to be looking at uh, this very big, very complicated idea, which is why I know Pastor Jim gave it to me, if he didn't want to do it, is the Trinity. And so we're going to be looking at the Trinity, and, and maybe just kind of to start things off, um, we should kind of maybe establish what we maybe mean by that. And so here's, here's a little bit of what we mean when we're talking about the Trinity. We're saying kind of this statement. It's this, God, he eternally exists as three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Each of these persons is fully God, and yet there is one God. The three are same in essence, they're equal in power, and they're equal in glory. Kind of a big statement. Um, Andrew, I, uh, hi, I'm Andrew. Uh, I don't really get oh. oh, I don't think your mic's on. Yeah, maybe hold that bottom button while I do. <laughs> okay, so first of all, I didn't know we were giving out mics. Uh, secondly, when we do, we probably need to uh, make sure they, they know how to use them, but that's on me. Um, yes, I guess for your sake, we'll try an analogy. Uh, I wasn't, I mean, I got to think of something, but okay. Uh, what about... I, was, I just had like a drink of water, so what about the whole, there's water, right? Uh, it's like how water exists uh, in a solid or, or a liquid or like a gas. Come on, Andrew, that's modalism. Okay. <laughs> we're just handing mics out to anybody now, huh? That's how we're doing that today. I'm sorry, moda what? Modalism, an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus, Cybelus, which say that um, God isn't three different persons, but rather he is three different beings, sorry, three different forms. If you read the Bible, you know, just says it right there. Um, you know, the father, it's kind of like a costume change. The father puts on a wig and some sandals and all of a sudden becomes a son. Everyone knows that this heresy was condemned by the first council of Constantinople in 381 AD. Come on, Andrew. Everybody knows that. Everybody but me, okay. Uh, I'll be, try to be better. What about, uh, okay, the sun, you're talking about the sun. What about the sun? All right, S-U-N, right? You got the star, then you got the light, and then you got the heat. Oh, Andrew, come on. That's not right. What? I'm sorry, what? Yeah, you see, that's, um, that's actually Arianism, where uh, theology st uh, stated in the early 300s from the Arius in Alexandria, which uh, states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are uh, creations of the Father and not actually one in nature with him. Uh, I'm not reading the script, I'm just checking my <laughs> shoes. Um, 
Just like how heat and light aren't the sun <laughs> itself, but rather creations of the S-U-N sun, not S-O-N sun. Uh, it's like you weren't even paying attention uh, when Pastor Jim taught this a few weeks ago, Andrew. Oh, maybe I was outside. Okay. Um, I'll Bad analogy, Andrew. <laughs> You're honestly the worst. Okay, this is getting a little hostile. I'll try one more, and this is a classic, so hopefully it'll work for you. What about the three-leaf clover? Does it work like God's like a three-leaf clover kind of thing? I'm going to go ahead and stop you right there, Andrew. <laughs> You're about to confess partialism. I'm sorry, partial what? Yes, partialism, a heresy that says no member, I know where it is, is a distinct person, but rather all come together to make up a third of the Godhead. Okay, I'm just, I'm going to go ahead and, and just have you sit down, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue where I'm going. First off, we're going to stop handing uh, people mics in the crowd. Um, but secondly, uh, let's just, let's cut with the analogies, let's try to explain it. I know it's a difficult thing, I know it's a complex thing. Um, uh, and I know that you guys are reading a book, and so now you're experts, um, but maybe let's, let's, we'll tone it down. How about you just let me go with where I'm going? What we're going to do is we're going to start by doing this. I just want to look at three quick statements uh, that explain really the foundations of what the Trinity is, and hopefully as we do that, we might uh, help uh, by kind of saying what it's not at the same time. So if you're following along, we're going to look at what the Trinity is and what it's not, and we're going to do uh, that by looking at it a couple of verses. And now I want to just apologize to all of you. Uh, normally, I kind of how I like to do things is kind of stick in one passage and kind of flesh that out. But with an idea that's so big and, and so mysterious as the Trinity, we're going to have to jump around a little bit. So it might be hard to follow along in your Bibles. I apologize for that. But again, it's, it's a big thing, and so we're going to look at that. So let's take a look at the first statement um, that we need to kind of set the foundation of what the Trinity is. It's this. It's God is three persons. The first statement, if you're following along, it's God is three persons. As Bryce uh, so wonderfully pointed out, uh, that an water analogy, it doesn't work. The water analogy doesn't work. Why does the water analogy not work? Well, if you're taking like the water bottle, right, and you're freezing it or you're boiling it, uh, what you're doing is just changing that water into different forms. It's kind of like he said, it's, uh, it, it's like a costume change, right? So the Trinity is not like a costume change. We're not just having a God change costumes to fit whatever era he is in. Uh, so this is not the same for God, right? He's, he's not just switching as it goes on. Um, and we get kind of two examples of this. Well, we get more, but two examples that I want to draw up for us today that we see in Scripture. The first one, it comes for us in John 16. See, in John 16, Jesus is talking with his disciples, and as he's talking with his disciples, he's preparing them for when he's going to leave them. And the disciples are kind of troubled by this, and he's trying to give them a source of encouragement, and he's telling them about, really, the day of Pentecost coming. He's saying, I'm going to send something for you. And here's what he says in, in John 16. He says in John 16, uh, in verse 4, he says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was already with you, but now I'm going to be with him who sent me. Yet none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus is saying something very clear right here. He's saying, look, I know you're sad. I know you're troubled. But when I go away, I'm going to send someone. I'm going to send the Spirit. I'm going to send someone to help. He's not saying, look, okay, I know you're troubled. I'm going to go away. I'm going to take a little breather, okay? This time on earth was a lot. 
then I'm going to like transform like Bumblebee or something like that. And I'm going to come on back and you're good. You say, no, I'm going I'm to send an advocate. He's going to send the Holy Spirit. He's not returning in a new form. There's not a wink, wink. There's not a, a little nudge to Peter that says, it's really me. And he's saying, no, there's someone else coming. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's not changing. And so there's three distinct persons, and, and, and perhaps the, the easiest way for us to see this is actually we, we get a glimpse of it at Jesus' baptism. As Jesus is being baptized, and, and you can see it in Mark, he's being baptized, and, and as he is, and he's coming out of the water, you get that glimpse of the three distinct persons in somewhat of a poetic form, but it was what's happening uh, of where you see Jesus come out of the water, and it says, heaven's opened, and the spirit de descended like a dove. And the voice from heaven says, you are my son, beloved, I am pleased with you. You get a glimpse of all three happening. And so as we're saying, what is the Trinity slash what is it not, the first thing we need to say is that there's three distinct persons. To kind of build off that, though, the second thing is this. Each of them is fully God. Each person is fully God. You can't say one is more God than the, the next, or one is less God is more likely what people usually did. Is saying one is less God than the next. We can't say that. We have to say each person is fully God. If we start saying one is less than the other, then we start getting ourselves in trouble. And actually, John, uh, in, in his gospel, which is probably my favorite gospel, he, he departs from the traditional kind of Christmas nativity scene uh, as he opens the book and instead opens it in a very different way. And what he's doing in his opening is reaffirming this truth. In John 1, we get this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, he was with him. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and it was the light of men. So John's saying from the very beginning, in the beginning, Jesus was there. There wasn't a time without him. He was there in the very beginning. He was with God, and he was God. He's setting that up at the very beginning. We have to say each person is fully God. Caleb, uh, he mentioned with one of the analogies, hey, that, that sun doesn't work because actually you're, you're talking about something called Arianism, which was an ancient heresy that kind of said, okay, look, Jesus was actually created. But, you know, he's still important because he was the first thing that God created. And so he's important, but he's, he's not, he, he's a step below God. You know, he's a created being. We get ourselves into trouble, though, with that. If Jesus is, is created, all of a sudden, our faith and our salvation is, is shaken. Now, God didn't come. We have a created being that's come. You almost have like a, a third party trying to do salvation. Saying, no, each is fully God. God did it himself. He was at work in all parts. And once we kind of do that, we kind of have to, we have to establish it for the Holy Spirit as well. We have to say, Holy Spirit is fully God as well. And you're going to get an interesting um, a part that reaffirms that is, uh, as it talks about the Holy Spirit, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and, and what does he tell them to do? He says, go to Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth, and as you do, go on baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's, it's kind of a, a verse that we don't really think about, but in that, we're really reaffirming the Godhood of the Spirit. Just think about how weird it would be if we replaced the Spirit with something that was like created in that sentence. If Jesus was like, go on uh, baptizing people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Archangel Michael, you'd be like, that feels weird. The, the Father, the Son, and Pastor Jim. And you're like, 
one of those doesn't belong. <laughs> I don't, we might need to rethink that statement. And so in this statement, we're being reaffirmed of the full Godhood of the Holy Spirit. And so we must affirm that there is three persons of the Trinity. We must affirm that each is fully God. And here's where our minds begin to kind of uh, struggle with the mystery. We must also affirm that there's one God. And we go, okay, this is where it begins to, 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 to really see the mystery play out because we're saying, you just said that there was three distinct persons. You just said that each was fully God, and now we're saying there is one God. And it, it's kind of hard to wrap our mind around, and there's the mystery in it, but Scripture is abundantly clear on this. Scripture makes it clear throughout the beginning to the end that there is one God. In fact, it's, it's reaffirmed in the greatest commandment where it says, love, oh, hear, O Israel, love the Lord your God. Uh, uh, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. There's three persons of the Trinity, but there's one God. And what that kind of means is, is they are one, not just in their purpose, right? It's not just they all agreed on the plan and they said, yeah, let's do it. We're in the same mindset, we're, we're with it. We're on the same goal. But they're one in their very essence as well. They're one in, in what makes them. And so when God speaks, what he does is he repeatedly makes it clear that there's only one true God. This idea that, that there's uh, like three gods out there, like it's a, a Roman or a Greek kind of pantheon um, that is out there would be completely unthinkable. It would have been so far from the truth that the Israelites, it would never cross their mind. I, rather, the idea was that there is one God. And so, as we look at the Trinity, the first thing we need to do is establish this foundation. We need to establish the foundation that there is one God. He exists in three persons, and all are equally God. But as we do, you might be thinking and sitting to yourself, why are we doing this? Like, why, why did you pick this topic? Are you doing this? just to like sound really smart and to have high schoolers throw out random creed dates. <laughs> You're on to me. But really, I, I, it's partly because I think there is something so crucial. As we begin to understand the Trinity, I, I think we see how big of a role it plays in the way that we see God and how big of a role it plays in our faith. And so uh, here's your big idea for today. Here's really why we're doing this and, and, and why we had to set that foundation. It's this. The Trinity shows us what love is. The Trinity shows us what love is. Why are we looking at the Trinity? Well, because I think as we begin to understand it more, we'll begin to see that the Trinity shows us what love is. As I've been studying this, I, I, really, I really came to the conclusion that I think without the Trinity, there's no such thing as love. Maybe, maybe you have like a, a broken imitation, something that's trying to look like it. But deep down, that, that imitation would just be selfish. Here's, here's why I was thinking this. You know, if, if God was not triune, let's say he was, he was uh, monothe like mono one, um, but there wasn't the three distinct persons, it's just a singular God. There's just one God. And he was eternally alone before creation how would that God be loving? Who would he love? He would probably be spending all of his time just loving himself because there's nothing to love. 
he would be spending all eternity looking, in a sense, in the mirror or, or singing a love song to himself, holding his own hand. And so we see that that, that God is eternally facing inward, eternally selfish. And so the scary idea would be that when creation would exist, if it ever would, if there was a single God, well, that pattern would continue. He wouldn't just all of a sudden change. He had been alone forever. He had loved himself forever. So now when there's something else, it would still be directed inward. What I think, though, we see is that our creation is not something that's selfish. I think what we see is that our creation uh, is actually selfless. We were created, uh, we would, in that, case, see, in that case, we would be created only because God would need something, and I think we see it so differently. But the interesting thing um, that I also saw is that when you kind of look at some of the other religions that were around Israel, that idea of like uh, uh, people being created because the gods needed something, it wasn't that like surprising to them. That's like kind of what they all thought. They were like, okay, well, we were created um, because the gods were lazy and like they needed us to work the earth. Or, like, we were created uh, because, like, uh, the gods are egomaniacs and, like, they needed someone to feed their ego. Uh, or we were created, uh, even some of the, the more well-meaning people were like, well, we were created because God is love and he needs something to love. But then you still have a problem. They, in that scenario, they always want to take. And I think the interesting thing is what we see with our God is the complete opposite. You see, he doesn't want to take, he wants to give. And I think therein lies the beauty of the Trinity. See, if you're only going to hear one thing from today, this is what I want you to hear. God didn't create you because he needs you. In fact, he doesn't need you. And you're, it's like an awkward silence. You're like, yeah, but you're also like, that's kind of scary. That's uncomfortable. If he doesn't need me, do I have any value? And that's the truth and that's the beauty. God doesn't need you, but he wants you. And I think there's something so much more than that. He wants you, even though you have nothing to give. He's not like your friend because um, you, you have like a really cool pool for him to hang out in the summer. And so like he's just using you for your pool, right? You have nothing that you can give him. And yet he wants you. Uh, author Michael Reeves, who is writing the book um, that we are reading uh, with some of the high schoolers and why they have felt so empowered today, um, he writes in his book this, this bit, and I thought it was so, uh, so interesting and so important, where it says, God didn't create the world because he was lonely. He's not lonely. God didn't create the world because he was lonely. He had always existed as Trinity, and love had always flown between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He made you, not because he needs you. He created you because he loves you. Let that sit in. He didn't do it because of anything he lacked, but rather because he was overflowing with what he had. God created us not because he needs us, because he wants us, because he wants us desperately. And I think as we begin to sit in that and as we see that more, I think we also can see that that makes salvation also so much richer if we see that god created us not because he needs us but because he wants us then it takes it salvation to a next level and here's the thing i'm guilty of this but i think we often think of, of salvation um, we kind of have this tendency to think of salvation as almost like um, getting our ticket to heaven punched 
right? It's like easy to think of it that way. It's easy to fall into that trap where we're like, okay, salvation is, is about um, like praying a prayer so I get my ticket to salvation punched and then I'm like good to go. I'm led into spiritual Disneyland. But we see, especially as we lean into the Trinity, that salvation is deeper than that. That salvation isn't just God simply allowing us into heaven. He just hasn't, it's not just him allowing us uh, to, to come into the place that we want. If that's our mindset, our view of God shifts. We begin to see God as almost like this dictator sitting in like a Thanos-like chair at the edge of, uh, of the universe, and he, he's clicking the tickets for you or maybe not you, and, and we're keeping him at this eternal distance. He's like, a, he's like a ruler, but he's distant and he's far and he's impersonal. And I think this view of God, it leaves us desperately wanting this view of God, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't fulfill, really. And I think that's why you see so many people struggle with faith is because they have this view of, I need my ticket punched, and they're not seeing the full picture. See, if the, the problem that comes of this is if we view God as this Thanos-like ruler who's sitting at the edge of the universe, he's distant, he's far, we're just trying to get our ticket punched, well, then the whole problem shifts. All of a sudden... Uh, the problem is, a uh, sin is, uh, we've broken the rules, right? Like, we've broken the rules, we're a lawbreaker, and, and that's uh, language we use, but now we're taking it a little differently. We've broken the rules, and so what's the solution? Well, in this scenario, the solution is that, well, God looks the other way. Like, God just, he lets you pass. He treats you as if you didn't break the rules. Like, I know you broke the rules, but I'm going to let it slide. And you might be thinking, okay, that doesn't sound that bad. That sounds pretty close to what we have. But as Reeves kind of pointed out, again, it changes the way we view God. All of a sudden, in this scenario, our relationship with God, it begins to look like a, a relationship that we have like with a traffic cop. Imagine, if you will, with me, just for a moment. Uh, it's Monday. It's tomorrow. You have to go to work. Uh, but you, you slept in, and so now you're late. And so what do you do? Well, you, as you hit Crenshaw, and you know the lights are a little farther going up or down the hill, uh, you start to hit that pedal a little faster, trying to make up some time on the road. And so now you're driving over the speed limit. And you're feeling okay until all of a sudden you get the little woo, right? A little sirens behind you. And you're like, ah, day ruined. And so you pull off to the side, and you're bumming out because you're like, I don't normally do this. And more importantly, I didn't think I was going to get caught. And you pull off to the side, and, and, and the traffic cop walks up to you, right? And they, they explain what's happening, and they start writing you the ticket. And you're, like, frustrated, and you're also upset, and you're like, ah, I didn't normally do this. And so what do you do? You're like, listen, listen, look, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'll never do this again. Like, I feel so bad. Uh, like, I don't normally do this. I'm not going to do it again. Like, maybe, like, just this one time, could you leave me with, like, a warning? Or, like, could you let it slide? And thankfully for you, this traffic cop's having a pretty good day, all right? Someone brought them donuts to work or something, all right? They're feeling good. And so they give out a little sigh, right? They put their ticket book back, they go to their car, and they drive away. And you're like, yes, that's awesome. My day's made. You're great. You're feeling awesome. But do you love that traffic cop? And you're like, well, I don't know, kind of. Like, I'm pretty happy right now, like... It's pretty great. 
but do you know them? Do you love them? I think in that moment, what you're feeling is gratitude, probably a really deep sense of gratitude as you've just been let off this ticket. But at the end of the day, that's all you're left with. And the, and, and the problem when that's all we're left with is it's fleeting. It's a fleeting feeling. Sure, you can promise, yeah, I'm, I don't normally do this and, I, and I'm not going to speed again. I promise I'll never do it again in my life. But are you really going to give that that much of a second thought as a week goes by, two weeks go by? It's not lasting. It's not lasting for you. And, and even more importantly, it's not lasting for that traffic cop. That doesn't mean they're always going to do that. If they were always going to do that, they probably need to find someone else for the job. And so you see that, that there's something missing there. And so if our view of God is just that we're getting our ticket punched, simply that he's looking the other way, not saying that that's, he does, doesn't do that because that's what he does, but if it's just that he's looking the other way, well, then our view of God is wanting and lacking and, and, and we just kind of feel this sense of gratitude. What I think we see through the Trinity, though, is it's not, salvation is not just about punching our ticket. Rather, we can see through the Trinity that God desires to bring us close to him and that God desires to make us children. That salvation is richer because God desires to bring us close and he desires to make us children. Galatians 4, 6, <clears throat> we get this awesome uh, line where it says, because you are his children, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. It's a spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now, here I think is, is one of the challenges is that I know for some of you, uh, this idea of God as Father may be a challenge. Maybe you, you didn't have a great relationship with your father, or you didn't have a great relationship with your, with your parent, and, and this idea of God as Father is not a good thing. It's not about someone who is caring, who is nurturing, who is mentoring. But here's the thing. God doesn't want you to think of him as some stuffy father. He doesn't want you to think of, of one uh, who, who went away and never came back or, or someone who lives uh, in, in eternal harshness whose approval you could never gain. It says he wants you to know him as Abba, as Daddy. That's something so much closer so much more intimate. Something that like feels weird for me to say on stage almost. Like to say, God's dad. It's daddy. Like it's weird. But it's that close. It's that level. He calls us to be children. His love for us is so intimate and so close that sometimes it can even feel reckless from our point of view. We're like, wow. It's that level. So when Jesus, uh, he tells probably his most famous uh, parable, the parable of the prodigal son, as he's he telling this story, I think the interesting thing of this parable is that I think we often miss who the real main character is. Because in, in my opinion, and I say opinion, so you can disagree. In my opinion, I think the main character of this, uh, of this story is not actually who it's named after. It's not the son, the prodigal son, or even the other son. I think the main character that God's trying to show is the father. I think what he's really trying to show in this story is who the father is. He's trying to show who Abba is. So much so that he continues to tell it in ways that should shock the crowd of how deep the father's love or how far the father is willing to go. For example, uh, in the story, 
uh, when the younger son comes up to him and he says, you know, basically, in, in a sense, this is a transliteration, you know, God, I don't need you. I wish you were dead. I hope you were gone. Please give me my money so I can go on with my life. The father doesn't just, like, smack him, as I'm sure everyone listening to the story assumed he would. The father says, okay. And he goes and, and he gets his inheritance. And this is where it's kind of like a, a, a gap for us. He can't just go to an ATM and like put in his ATM card and, and withdraw some money. In order for him to give that son his inheritance, he would have to go out and he would have to go sell some of his land. And this isn't just kind of like selling a property. He's selling promised land. It's a big deal in that culture. It was such a big deal, in fact, that it would have been really loud. It would have been really public. Everybody would have known about it. So in that town... He was probably the talk of the town for at least weeks, if not for years. Everybody would have known about it. Everybody would have talked about it. Everyone would have been upset. So upset, in fact, that they probably were telling themselves, all right, if we ever see that kid again, we're going to let him have it. He's going to know. He is not welcome here. And they might even be saying even more serious stuff like, oh, we'll show him. And I think it's that kind of, of understanding that shows us, again, just how deep the Father's love for us is as children. Because what happens in the story, well, the son runs out of money, decides to come home, and he's walking back, he's rehearsing his speech, and what does the father do? He runs out to him, right? And we always think, oh, that's so awesome. Like, he runs out to him, he greets him, he doesn't let him do the speech. But the cultural significance is huge. Because in that day and age, fathers never ran. It's not like they were lazy, it was like a status thing. If you wanted something from the father, you went to him. He doesn't go to you. So fathers never ran. And so the fact that the father is running out there is for two reasons. One, he knows the town hates that kid. He knows that he would face an incredible amount of shame, an incredible amount of pain. And he doesn't want his son to face that. So what does he do? He runs out to them. In order to do that, too, back in the day, they were wearing, like, long togas. And so, um, ladies, if you ever wore, like, a prom dress or something like that, you know, you got to, like, hike up. Uh, he's hiking up his toga, right? And he's running out there in order to do it. And so, not only is he protecting his kid from the, the, the shame and the pain by, by getting out there ahead of it, but he's also doing it by showing off probably a little too much skin. <laughs> and so, the father is taking on this crazy amount of shame and pain for his child. Why? Well, I said it right there, because he views him as his, it's his child. What lengths would he not go for his child? And so what do we see here? We see that the, 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 through the Trinity, we're seeing that God is bringing us into a closeness of children. It's not just that we're our ticket to heaven is punched, and it's like, yeah, I can go ride all the cool rides in heaven. I got the gold castle. I'm set. It's that he's bringing us to himself. There's a closeness to salvation that's deeper and richer. And so I kind of want to transition to the close with this. <clears throat> As we look at the Trinity and we, we kind of understand what it is, and hopefully from there we see what it shows us, and as we see what it shows us of, of how its love is only possible through the Trinity and how that love is so much deeper than we ever understood, well, the hope is then, well, how does it change us? How does it change us? And I think it changes us through this line. We become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. Who are you worshiping? 
right? If you worship an idol, we become like that idol, right? If we worship money, well, then we become uh, more like uh, it controls us and we want greed. If we worship success, then our reputation is everything, right? We, we, we overreact how people talk about us um, and, and we are willing to cross lines uh, easier because we're like, ah, success is everything. If we worship an idol, we become like an idol. And I think that's a little easier to understand. But then I think the other thing is if we worship a misrepresentation of God, I think then we're pulling closer to that misrepresentation. And so are we worshiping kind of that Thanos creator, just distant, impersonal ruler, the divine policeman? If so, we're just going to uh, overcompensate into the law-abiding citizen uh, who is distant and cold. Are we worshiping the, the, the single God? right? Uh, if so, then kind of like that, our first thought's going to be towards ourselves. We're going to be thinking about ourselves. I don't know, Danny, did that slide of the, the single, single God looking for... I, messed, I, I might have skipped that for you. I wrote a little note on it, because I kind of like that. This is not my line, so don't give me credit for this. No? Oh, yeah, there, yeah, right. If we worship a single God kind of like that, right, single God, non-smoker, seeking attractive creation, good sense of humor, again, did not write that, don't give, but I think that shapes us as well, if that's who we're worshiping. You can see the, the, the neediest, neediness and the selfishness attached to it. Or are we worshiping the triune God? Are we worshiping the Trinity? Because if we, if we see and understand deeper the Trinity and the love that's within it, I think it shapes us. We can see how self-giving God is. And all of a sudden, we're still probably a little faced inward, but it's a little less, turning towards others. This overflowing love from the Trinity, we can't help but be shaped by it. And so let me just close by asking this question. Right? Who do you worship? Who do you worship? Because we become like who we worship. Let's pray. God, as we just come before you today, Lord, and, and we look at uh, the depth and mystery of the Trinity and, and something that cannot be understood in 30 minutes, Lord, uh, let it just shape us a little bit. God, let us see you more clearly as a God who is just overflowing with love, and because of that, you so desperately wanted us. Lord, we thank you for the gift of who you are. God, we ask that as we worship you more, people can see a little bit more of you in us. So we just pray this in your name. Amen.